Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Mind itself, this clear, void, all-knowing, all-aware, it is like sky, primal, clarity, voidness, indivisible, in the clarity of original intuitive wisdom. Just that determination is reality. The reason is that all appearance and existence is known as your own mind, and this mind itself is realized, space-like, in its intelligence and clarity. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. I am, I have a terrible memory. Uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess something here, okay? I don't know about you, and you don't need to admit to this if you don't want to, but when we, a, after we record episodes, you know, we build up, we do a lot of research, <laughs> uh-huh. we record episodes, a lot of it just goes right out of my head. Um, I retain the basics. And the, the, of the knowledge and the, the ideas that we convey, but the, the, the very fine details like names or locations of things, uh, I lose almost immediately. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very similar in that regard. I often tell people that I have approximate knowledge of all things because there you go, yeah. we cover so many topics. I do not retain all the details. I certainly don't retain the numbers. Uh, but I, I retain the, the basic essence of yeah. what we discussed. Yeah. Um, but today's episode is about a, a, a topic or it's tying two topics together that I think could help us with that if we, if we really wanted to, right? Although I'm now starting to think of the podcast as being sort of a portable memory unit as well. Yeah. Or even a mandala. Exactly. Which is one of the, the topics here today. And that's why the quote at the top of the episode here was uh, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, because uh, in order to unpack the idea of the mandala, we have to discuss Tibetan Buddhism a little bit. And, and in doing that, discuss uh, Buddhism a little bit. But from there, don't worry, we're going to get into the idea of the memory palace in uh, uh, Western and modern traditions, as well as a little bit into the idea of virtual worlds. Now, in putting this together, we looked to a number of different sources. Uh, one source that I particularly enjoyed was Robert E. Fisher's Art of Tibet, because ultimately we're dealing with with an artistic tradition here, and it's great to have some wonderful images to yeah. look at while you're learning about it. So uh, if you are if you want to learn more about uh, Tibetan art in general, uh, this is worth picking up. You can uh, find this online or certainly at various uh, museum stores. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend, too, like if you're listening to this and you've never seen a mandala before and, and it's intriguing you, like go image search mm-hmm. for them because there there's a lot of variety, first of all, but also just they're stunning. There's and this is across. There's so many different styles of them too. That's one of the things we're going to find out. Yeah, and we'll describe them in, in greater detail later. But essentially, if if you don't have one in front of you right now, if you're not looking at our, our homepage, then the mandala are, are these various Tibetan pieces, and there are also uh, mandalas outside of Tibetan tradition where you have a figure at the center, usually. And that figure is often a, a either a, a Buddha, a Bodhisattva, or a or a god or a goddess. Yeah. And then there's there is like concentric circles and and even squares around them. There's a lot of activity. There are additional deities and figures, uh, all just sort of flowing out from this central entity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I up until really when you proposed that we do this episode was familiar with them as sort of just like the aesthetic trappings of. 
Tibet or India, um, especially from, you know, my growing up overseas, I would see stuff like this in Singapore occasionally, Mm -hmm. but like, I never realized how, uh, culturally and, uh, almost mnemonically important that they are. Yeah. They, uh, I think I started learning about them in greater detail a few years back when, uh, Emory university here in Atlanta, they, at least in the past, have always done a Tibet week and they'll have some actual Tibetan monks come in and make mandalas out of sand, out of colored sand, which is this, you know, fabulous, you know, quintessentially Buddhist practice of creating these wonderful works of art out of individual pieces of sand. And then you just destroy it at the end. Yeah. I have some notes about that that we'll go over later. The process is fascinating. All right. So let's, let's talk for just a minute about Buddhism and the, and the Tibetan version of Buddhism. So as uh, Robert E. Fisher explains in the art of Tibet, uh, and, and, uh, this is also something that's come up in previous research for me. I did a bit on sky burial for how stuff works mm. years ago and got to dive into uh, Tibetan history and Tibetan, uh, uh, culture a, a little bit. Oh, have we, have, has stuff to build your mind on a sky burial episode? I don't know that we have. I feel like Joe has also done research on that separate from this. Yeah. Hmm. It'd be something worth uh, tackling. There was a a recent Warren Ellis comic that was all about sky burial. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a fat, just to explain what we're talking about. It's an exposure burial where one uh, takes the body of the deceased. There are a few different burial practices in Tibet, but this one is the the more famous because Mm -hmm. Especially to outsiders, it's a bit macabre. It, it seems macabre. Yeah, that they, they take the body, they break it down into pieces, and then the vultures eat the pieces. Yeah, but it is a. This is a very remote region, very mountainous. There's just not that much soil in in which to plant a body. Yeah. Uh, so this is very much an option on the table, and it it falls well in line with the the older shamanistic animistic traditions, like the pre. Uh, uh, pre, uh, uh, Buddhism traditions of yeah. Tibet. Yeah. And there's a, and, and which is very much connected to what we're going to be talking about today. Although we did not intend to bring up sky burial. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like the idea that you're sort of giving back to the ecosystem, to the universe. Yeah. So again, it's a, a remote region. It's framed by some of the world's highest mountains and it served as quite a fascinating, I guess you could say an incubator for foreign religion influences, most notably that of Buddhism which came from several different directions into Tibet in the 7th and 12th centuries CE. And to put that all in perspective, the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, or the uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, would have lived in the 5th century BCE. And uh, these foreign influences flowed in on top of pre-existing shamanistic Bon religious ideas in Tibet. The shamanistic part is going to come back around is it's important for me, but I want us to get through the, the mandala stuff first. I think there's some interesting connections here between modern storytelling and shamanistic thinking. Now, the incorporation of a foreign religion is not an overnight sensation as <laughs> it's not just like Buddhism came in and they said, all right, this is our jam. Now, uh, as Fisher uh, points out, we see cycles of royal import and support for Buddhism, along with periods of persecution. But eventually we reach this uh, this period of the, the second diffusion, a seminal period in Tibetan Buddhism in the last quarter of the 10th century. Now, at this point, I want to challenge everyone to, to think about religion uh, a little differently for the purposes of understanding Tibetan Buddhism, or at least to understand it as much as an outsider ultimately can. Uh, I want you to think about religion as, as technology. 
Now, I'm not meaning to directly invoke Scientology lingo here or to advocate equal footing between science uh, and, re- um, and technology and religion, but rather I want you to think of religion as a system of rights, beliefs, and mental programs intended to bring about one or more particular ends. You know, just think about why people engage with religion, right? Yeah. They want peace, happiness, liberation, salvation, elevation to a higher human form, what have you. You know what that reminds me of? Cyborgism. Yeah. Very much so, which we've discussed at length before. If you go back, uh, we have a an episode from, was it last year? I think last year, yeah, yeah. On, but, on cyborgs. But we definitely, I think we, I don't philosophy remember how. Philosophy of cyborgs. We, we definitely technology. get into the philosophy of yeah. it. And, and in a sense, kind of into the religious idea of it. Yeah, yeah. So consider that the uh, Mahayana branch of Buddhism, one of the three main branches and the largest today, okay? Let's consider this one. This is the the great path as opposed to the lesser path of uh, Theravada Buddhism, uh, which originated in Sri Lanka. The Mahayana way of Buddhism focuses on ordered uh, monastic life and rites, and it offers a rather long-term technological solution to life's problems, a contemplative and intellectual journey to enlightenment that can take eons to complete through endless rebirths across time until uh, at last all, livings, uh, all living beings might be free from suffering. Sounds good, right? Yeah. But then uh, this is where the esoteric forms of Buddhism enter the picture, uh, in particular, the um, the Vajrayana or diamond vehicle or thunderbolt vehicle, um, the, the tantric corpus of Buddhism. OK, uh, sometimes I've seen this referred to as apocalyptic Buddhism. So if Mahayana Buddhism was a to put this in sci fi terms, yeah. if it was a generation ship, a generation starship trudging its way endlessly uh, across space towards a distant exoplanet, then uh, the Vajrayana uh, Buddhism is a warp drive starship. It promises a means of individual liberation from the wheel of suffering within a single lifetime. I feel like this came up when we were talking about um, mummification of monks. Yeah, I bet, bet it did, because we talked a little bit about uh, the Bodhisattva of the future. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. And that bodhisattva certainly plays into a Tibetan Tibetan uh, uh, culture uh, a bit as well. But uh, the crazy thing about this is that this uh, this this idea of esoteric Buddhism is it's n- it's not a mere shortcut approach. So it's not one of these to to sort of try and throw it into uh, like uh, modern Christian terms. It's not like okay, just love Jesus and everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about any of the steps. It's not something like that where it's like hey, don't do all this work, just do this. No, there. The approach here is is uh, is putting a tremendous amount of work into uh, achieving this end. The stakes are just as high, and the amount of mental effort involved uh, is staggering, entailing the study and contemplation of uh, of all these other uh, roots, uh, in, entailing additional rituals and the worship of two distinct pantheons: the five Buddha families of the uh, celestial Buddhas. Uh, each residing in one of the pure lands and uh, the appropriated Hindu deities. So mm-hmm. you have all these different deities going on. It's um, like reading about it. I couldn't help but think of it in terms of, say, a Dungeons and Dragons character. OK, where, you know, generally you just want to you pick your character class and you pursue it and you and you do everything uh, right. But you can dual class. You can multi-class. This would be like multi-classing your D&D character. Uh and, and just setting out to achieve all of his or her goals by just quadruple classing with wizard, priest, sorcerer, warlock. 
all to just to take something that would normally take lifetimes to achieve right. in a single lifetime. Yeah. In the D&D uh, comparison, you're combining the arcane and the divine. Fisher has a wonderful quote, I think, that drives this home. He says, belief in the awesome possibility of harnessing the powers needed to achieve enlightenment in this existence inspired complex and mysterious practices. Such secret doctrines, visualizations and magical powers were not things that could be easily spelled out in texts. And the Vajrayana literature remains as complex and mysterious as any of the world's religions. So, in other words, to organize this vast system of beliefs and gods and ways of thinking about life in the universe, uh, to make it manageable, uh, practitioners, developed, practitioners developed an enormous complex visual system, an artistic tradition complete with a host of instruments, symbols, and images. So all of this, if we take it all together... Touches upon a, a lot of topics that Robert and I have covered on Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the last year. I'd say like a theme that we've been working upon is mythology, archetypes, uh, sort of cultural resonance of those things and how they allow us to make sense of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like a very practical, objective standpoint, human beings need all of this whether it's Buddhism or Christianity or Jediism, yeah. uh, to, to help them make sense of how the world works. And this form of Buddhism just presents a, an incredibly complex and esoteric answer to that question. And in doing so, essentially, the practitioner is saying, look, you're going to need to look at a lot of, of charts, a lot of graphs, right. yeah. a lot of pie charts. This is kind of the, the equivalent would be like a really in-depth PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm. We have to look at a bunch of charts and graphs to get the meaning of what's going on. These various symbols and artistic traditions play into that as well. And among these, one finds the mandala. Yeah. Why don't we take a break? And then we come back, we're going to define the basics of the mandala for you so you can understand how... We're going from PowerPoint presentation to the art. All right, we're back. So the basics here of the the mandala. So when you're saying, like, what is it literally? Uh, I've seen some people say a circle, some say an arc. I've also uh, seen it uh, translated as, quote, an essence protecting environment. They're ultimately, though, nothing short uh, of a representation of the entire sacred universe. Yeah, the way that I've read about it is that it's a symbol of the entire universe and it can be represented anywhere. It could be on a wall or mm-hmm. on paper or on, in the sand, like we talked about earlier, or entirely in your mind. Uh, and its purpose is to represent an imaginary palace that is contemplated upon during meditation. Yeah, they can be 2D, they can be 3D in the form of a sculpture or even architecture, yeah. or they can be this, this mental construct. And ultimately, I guess the physical representations are about creating the mental construct in right. your mind. Right, yeah. Uh, I really like the way that Robert F. Thurman explained it in his translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I, I read from, from at the top of this episode. He said, they are three-dimensional perfected environments, Buddha-verses or Buddha-lands created by the enlightenment of an individual individual as a place that expresses his or her enlightenment. They are realms through which other beings can be incorporated into that enlightenment perspective. Hmm. So it, in a sense, it's kind of like, here's a, here's a picture, here's a physical representation of my headspace that allows me to make sense of the complexities of reality. Here, gaze into it. 
and pour this into your mind. So I may be stretching this a little bit, but let me continue on from what we were talking about with Dungeons and Dragons earlier. Uh-huh. Okay. To me, what this sounds like is world building in fiction, like science fiction or fantasy, right? That you're, you're creating an alternative to the real world and you're giving it its own culture and deities and economy and locations, right? And the mandala, uh, sort of encapsulates all of those in one artistic representation. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair comparison because when you think of a fantasy book in particular or Dungeons and Dragons module, you inevitably think of maps. Yeah, and a number right. of, and there's a, there's a lot of of map like structure in these as we'll get into uh, the the basic cosmology of the Buddhist universe with its uh, holy mountain at the center. Like that's very much a part of it. Uh, but yeah, ultimately they're they're symbolic expressions. They're teaching devices. They're um, externalizations of complex theologies. In a way, you can think of them as thumb drives of the gods, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I read about Tibetan mandalas in particular is that the deities within them, they're represented as embodying philosophical views. They serve as role models for us to look at and remember, okay, this is what has come before me. Mm-hmm. These are the lessons learned by my ancestors. What can I take from this to guide my life? Yeah, they entail a number of symbols and essentially meta symbols. Yeah, it reminds me. Okay, this is what I think of this idea that number one, culture is how we understand the world. Uh, and number two, storytelling is our means of transmitting culture to one another as human beings. And then third, that the archetypes that are within such stories, they teach us lessons about the human experience from other people's perspectives, right? So this is where I, and I am sort of trying to pull this together on my own. It's a little bit of Jungian stuff from what we've talked about in mythology before, but I'm starting to see storytellers as modern shamans. And the mandala seems to me like another expression of that. It's just done with art instead of words. Yeah, I think so. Words or sand even. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we've mentioned these sand mandalas. Um, the construction of them has to be affirmed as a ritual, which is very shamanistic, right? In order for the mandala to transmit positive energy to its viewers, it's drawn in a ceremony. And the ceremony includes monks chanting and dancing. Uh, they use these metal funnels that are called chakpur, and apparently they vibrate in such a way that it causes the colored sand inside to flow out like a liquid when they're making them. Yeah, I want to say they kind of tap them on the side as they go with I, a I little metal so. implement, and it causes the like almost the individual uh, granules of sand to come out, uh, and, uh, and they just make a line with it. Yeah, and what's important to note about these is they're not permanent. They're not meant to be permanent. They're destroyed by these same monks. It serves as a reminder that our lives are impermanent. Uh, and the sand itself is returned to an urn, which is then that sand is then placed in water. So they see it again, going back to what we were talking about with sky burial, they see this as a gift that goes back into the environment, back into the universe. Uh, I see some more accidental synchronicity between this episode and the other episode we recorded this week that on human bound, uh, human flesh bound books. Yeah. Because yeah. this, the creation of the sand mandala is 
an acceptance of impermanence, that anything right. that we make is just not going to last. Whereas the fleshbound book is more in the tradition of this will last forever. Exactly. This person's flesh will be, uh, will be immortalized in this, this tome. Well, or it's, you know, uh, I know that I'll be gone and I will just become an object at some point. So I want to give the parts of my body, uh, <laughs> to be used for other purposes, such as holding these uh, books of anatomy together. Yeah, object permanence. Yeah. Now, I do want to point out that the use of art to convey complex religious ideas can be found many other places as well. Uh, the, the three-faced Christs of medieval art instantly come to mind. Uh, the, these were not super common, but uh, and it was only a brief period of time, and uh, the church eventually decided that they did not care for it. Mm-hmm. But you have something like the Holy Trinity in uh, Christian and Catholic traditions. Yeah. How do you convey that to the layperson? Well, one way is to have an image of Christ that has three faces, huh. essentially a monstrous Christ. Okay. Um, but it tries to encapsulate something that is very difficult to explain yeah. with language. Yeah. I'm thinking of uh, <laughs> these weird monsters from the Transformers called the Quintessons. Oh, yeah. I love the Quintessons. They had the three yeah. faces that rotated around. I wonder if there's some connection there. I don't know. But you, if you see the, the picture of the three-faced Christ, you can't help but think of those guys. Yeah. For sure. Just no tentacles. Right. <laughs> now, uh, and then another example from Christian tradition would be the crucifix uh, and the cross itself. So think about this. The prefrontal cortex as part of the mammalian brain, uh, this is responsible for relating symbols and abstract concepts. The unconscious processing prior to perception usually takes around uh, 300 milliseconds. So it's not that surprising that, as uh, psychologist Adam Alter uh, discovered, Christians tend to behave more honestly when they're exposed to an image of the crucifix, even if they're n- they have no conscious memory of having seen it. They're just exposed to it. And just the, the power of the symbol in, in helped inform their behavior. Literally, and, the power of Christ compels you. Yeah, or at least the power of Christian symbolism. <laughs> uh, and in 1989, uh, there was an experiment from the University of Michigan that found that Christians felt less virtuous after subliminal exposure to an image of Pope John Paul II. Hmm. And there have been some secular ex- experiments with this as well. People tending to think more creatively when exposed to the Apple computer logo or an incandescent light bulb. <laughs> So that's just a, just a few examples to drive home just the power of symbols, the yeah. power of non-linguistic information, uh, even in just small examples. And if you roll it all up into uh, essentially a meta symbol, as we see in the mandala, you can see how this does really help to, to, to form the mindset of the, uh, the, the younger Buddhist uh, trying to learn how to perceive reality. Yeah, I think that this is just a version of that that we here in the West maybe aren't as familiar with. Now, to go back to what we said earlier about about maps, um, the kind of mandalas that we're talking about here, it's an organized system that explains the cosmos in terms of the body, in terms of a building, in terms of the physical universe. So uh, they reference the notion of the, the Buddhist cosmos uh, as centered by holy Mount Meru, which is the home of gods and Buddhas, oh, and okay. surrounded by seven oceans and seven concentric mountain ranges. And beyond these ranges, you find another ocean, islands that include human habitation, and finally a great wall of rock enclosing everything. Generally, you know, square shape because the image itself is square shape. Interesting. Okay. So a mandala is spatial, it's symmetrical, and it's a presentation of all of these ideas. Yeah. So you've got an example here of sort of how you would build out a mandala from the. Now, my understanding is you start at the center and you build going out. 
Yeah, I don't, I think that's, or at least that's the way that I feel like we look at them. We tend to process them. So you have a central deity, you know, or Buddha or, uh, you know, other figure. You have concentric circles of guardian deities. You have square palace grounds featuring gateways, you know, to, ways to get in and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, circle of cre- uh, cremation grounds representing the phenomenal world, direction deities, and then the outer walls, oceans, barriers. At mm-hmm. the very edge of the image. So in other words, we're talking about a world generated as art so that it might be simulated in the mind, a place where fortresses of bone rise above uh, a sea of blood, where a pantheon of wrathful and serene de- deities assemble in precise arrangement. You got, you know, multi-limbed uh, beings dancing, cyclopean architecture, uh, mountains that bridge earth to the cosmos. It's all present. Mm. And and we're serious about the the seas of blood part. Yeah. Tibetan art and iconography makes use of many dark elements such as bone, blood, flayed skin. Uh, but here's just to give you a, a taste of this. This is from HimalayanArt.org, uh, and it's uh, a d- description of the mandala of the Yama uh, Dharma Arja. It describes the, the the mandala in detail, but the more the most interesting part here is all of this is encircled by a ring of skulls, a sea of blood, and the eight great charnel grounds, again surrounded by a circle of vajras, uh, the bright orange flames of pristine awareness. So I um I go to a yoga studio here in Atlanta called Tough Love Yoga, mm-hmm. uh, which is infamous uh for conducting what's called metal yoga, yeah. where you do yoga listening to death metal. Um and the woman who started it there um, she has brought artwork like this to the studio oh, awesome. because it seems like it's incidental, but it's not. There's lots of skull iconography and blood and things like that. Things that we associate with death metal yeah. uh, in, in artwork that connects to yoga. Then they've got, they've got this giant mandala, uh, wheel painted on the wall by a local tattoo artist is really cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of very death metal uh, imagery on this. I mean, the, what we just described sounds like it could be uh, a Slayer album cover. Totally, yeah. <laughs> but in, in looking at these uh, mandalas, you'll find a great deal of complexity. Sometimes there are mandalas within uh, mandalas. And uh, Robert E. Fisher at one point in, in his book uh, refers to, quote, a remarkable visual uh, litany of deities, mostly female, a programmatic sequence that can be traced back to specific tests. I like that description because it really brings the, uh, the technological, yeah, the technological idea that this is, it's kind of like a program that you're loading into your mind. Mm-hmm. And the study of uh, mandala art is a discipline unto itself, but we can explore a little more of their power and connection to the human mind by considering uh, a Western notion, that of the memory palace. Yeah. So let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to give you a refresher on the memory palace. There's been a previous stuff to blow your mind episode on it, but we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit and then we're going to connect these two things together. All right, we're back. So, yeah, so you and previous host Julie did a Memory Palace episode. Is that right? We did. And then we did a rerun of it after uh, you and Joe came on board that featured an interview with a memory champion. So there are two different versions of that podcast. I'll I'll try and link to the, the interview version on the landing page for this episode because you get to hear from somebody who 
uses memory palace um and uses the the method of loki uh to a very high degree yeah this came up a lot in the literature of how memory contestants are using this Mm -hmm. so that they can just memorize vast amounts of information but a lot of you out there are probably thinking there's a lot of pop culture examples of this right now I, i remember hearing about this from somewhere well uh, it, it, it's certainly in the BBC version of Sherlock, uh, and as previously discussed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, uh, somebody who we're interested in, the work of Maria Konnikova, she has written a book on how to think like Sherlock Holmes, which oh, yeah. talks about memory palaces. Uh, in the BBC Sherlock, it's called A Mind Palace, uh, which some people think was picked up from British illusionist Darren Brown, or... From Hannibal Lecter in the novels or the TV series. Now, Thomas Harris, who, you know, wrote the original novels that feature Hannibal Lecter, he credits this idea back to Francis Yates, who's the author of The Art of Memory. And Yates traces the idea of the memory palace back to, uh, someone named Bruno, a 1600s Dominican monk. Uh, but that goes even further back down through the medieval and renaissance era, back to the Greek poet Simonides. Uh, and Yeats argues that the seven deadly sins, or for instance, Dante's divine comedy, the structures within those of hell and purgatory and heaven, those are all versions of memory palaces. And in, and in turn, memories of Mandalus. Yeah. I, it, I think there's a lot of comparison to be made, uh, between a, a map of Dante's Inferno and uh, the Mandal. Yeah, it's just different mythology. Uh, the theme of Yeats' work is that the Renaissance, which we view now with some skepticism as superstitious, is actually full of, quote, magical beliefs that we now continue on into our scientific revolution. So, for instance, go see our two episodes on John D. for more on that. And we, we actually, this is a, a theme that comes up a lot for us, I think. But uh, maybe also a little bit in the book binding uh, of Human Skin that we're recording this week. But the same idea here that um, there is stuff that seems like it's uh, superstitious or magical in nature that does actually have some purpose to it in our current scientific methodology of thinking. Yeah, I mean, it basically, the, the idea of the memory palace, it basically all boils down to employing spatial memory to memorize information by placing it all in an imagined palace, uh, a palace filled with memorable symbols. So, you know, we've discussed on here before, there are various forms of memory that we employ. There's not just one bucket of memory. And this is essentially a way that we tweak our mind into using spatial memory to to remember um, often just you know, sometimes numbers or or, or un, unimportant facts. The idea here is that humans have a knack for remembering spatial layouts. Brain scans even show uh, show us that the, the spatial learning parts of the brain are used by people uh, who actually win these memory contests. It's particularly useful for remembering things in a sequence or a list, like groceries, for example. Uh, it requires a, a lot of time to establish, but once once you have it in place, you can go back to you continue to walk through that memory palace in order to remember the the items and the order. Yeah, and one of the things that I saw that connects it back to the mandala is that uh, someone pointed out that Buddhism uses a lot of sequence and list type information in order to get across its philosophy. So. Subsequently, the mandalas then translate really well into these memory palaces. Now, the origin, okay, 
so what I just took us through brought us all the way back to Greek poet Simonides. Uh, but it, it was first written in the Rhetorica ad Herenium, which, uh, in the eighties BCE was written by unknown authors. Some people thought that it might've been, uh, Cicero, but now they, they think they don't know who it is. Um, now this is the oldest surviving Latin book on rhetoric and it teaches the method of loci, which is the, 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 the idea of the memory palace or the idea of using imagined well-known locations like your home to remember things. Now this to me reminded me of my, um, my schooling in, in rhetoric. It seems inherently connected to the Aristotelian idea of the peripatetic learning system. Have you heard about this at all? So basically the idea was that uh, Aristotle, when he was working with his students in his, his quote college, his school, mm-hmm. that they would learn while they were walking and talking. Oh yes. Yes. Uh, and the method of loci is essentially a walkabout. So you're re remembering what you learned by going on an imaginary walk. But here's the thing. Other sources say, Actually, it was invented by Greek poet Simonides, uh, and this was <laughs> real morbid. Apparently, after he stepped out of a banquet hall, it collapsed and killed everybody inside, and he was uh, left to identify their remains. He had to put a name to each body, and that's how he invented the method of loci. So he's th- he was thinking to himself, all right, so Jim was se- seated over there. He, yeah. had the, he had the chicken wings, and then... And then Joe, he was over here. Yeah, he was to my left, and he's piecing this all together. Exactly, yeah. Well, Cicero, though, was involved. He is celebrated as popularizing it. Uh, he wrote something down, basically because writing something down at that time was expensive. Paper was expensive. Not everybody knew how to write. Uh, it wasn't until the printing press that it basically, the method of loci, the memory palace, became obsolete. Huh. And we've continued to see that pattern uh, as we've uh, changed the ways that we can externalize memory. We have to rely on internal memory less. Yeah, exactly. Now, as we said already, it's employing spatial memory. And uh, it makes sense that humans would have a robust ability for spatial memory because, as I mean, that's what we do. We live in a, this physical world. And even though most of us have probably have our patterns, you know, down, you know, to a, ultimately, a, you know, just a few varied environments and you know how to get there and how to get back. You know, we're, we're programmed to deal with a broader world. We're programmed to, to, to make spatial sense of the world around us, to catalog it, store it away. And so this is just taking spatial scaffolding and applying it to a list of facts, to a theological structure, to a cosmological viewpoint, uh, so the memory palace is not a trick. Yeah. It's, it's just how we think about the world. And we're taking the way we think about physical reality, the way we think about spatial environments and using it to, uh, to remember, uh, other, uh, organized systems. Yeah. It's almost like these other older cultures had created a learning system around how we naturally adapt to knowledge, how we, how we absorb knowledge. And then we went and somehow broke that and created this other learning system that, especially for memorization, that's far more difficult and not how our, our biology is set up to learn. Mm -hmm. Uh, and now, now we're sort of coming back and we're going, Oh, right, right. Yeah. This is spatial learning is actually much easier. Yeah. And so again, we come back to this idea of the, the mandala and 
to see one of these and imagine it on the wall, it makes perfect sense. You, yeah. you can't just write out everything and have these notes for everybody that's trying to, to, to learn the system, but you can have someone guide them through it, refer to this uh, work of art, and then you look at it, you take it in, and you're able to use this as the memory palace for the theological ideas. Now, the thought at work here is that uh, memory palaces harness our evolved skill at remembering details of locations because as hunter-gatherers, we used to recall what was edible, where to find it, or how to avoid what was poisonous because of spatial memory. Modern research backs this up. After people viewed thousands of images for a few seconds each, studies found that on average they could distinguish 80% of the images from those that they had not seen. Uh, in addition, people can usually recall objects they've seen after seeing hundreds of intervening ones, showing our capacity for storing visual memories in the long term. This is, I, I don't know if you've... Uh, heard this a lot, but when I was in academia, it was really starting to become popular. The idea of visual thinkers. I'm a visual Mm -hmm. thinker. Uh, I can't, I can't read that text. I need something visual, uh, is, is something that's making its way through, uh, sort of just the education system. Other studies have shown that the memory palace, the usage of it, it doubles the proportion of people who can remember an 11 to 12 item grocery list. So again, sequences and lists work really well. Students who use it in economics outperform those who did not when they take an exam. And medical students who used it learned more about the endocrine system than those who did not. It's uh, apparently also useful for patients who've had treatments that can potentially impair their recall or cognitive function. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. Like, again, there, there, again, there are multiple forms of memory. And if you can tap into uh, another form of memory to achieve the goals of one that's damaged, then uh, then you can find a, a good bit of success. Yeah. As I was doing the research, I immediately thought to myself, if as I become older, I uh, start experiencing memory loss and or dementia, going to have to turn to a memory palace and just really <laughs> develop one. So we've already hit on a number of the parallels here between the memory palace and uh, the mandala. Um, and, and a number of the, the parallels are just obvious. Again, it's all about using um, our spatial memory to uh, to internalize uh, either a, you know, a long list of data or a theological system. Yeah, and it's all really brought together here for us by an East Asian scholar named Dan O'Huigan, and he provides interesting commentary on the concept of the mandala being like a memory palace. He argues the mandala serves the same purpose as memory palaces that Roman orators used. Uh, For instance, they used it to help monks organize their knowledge. Now, keep in mind that in both instances, these people had to rely on their memories more than we do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have paper. They didn't have flash drives. They didn't yeah. have smartphones. Uh, his primary example is Quintilian's use of placing symbolic items in his home to help him remember things about law and the courts. And then people like Robert Flood or uh, Giordano Bruno, who I mentioned earlier, they went on to visualize memory palaces as imagined spaces, more similar to the mandala. O'Huigan, though, he thinks that these techniques were developed independently from one another, even though they're extremely similar. Uh, and the mandala allows them to visualize something colorful to help you remember what's going on. And it's similar to how Buddhism uses lists to help you remember its tenets, as I was mentioning earlier. Yeah, and you see this in a, in, 
in uh, really a number of different uh, Asian uh, religions, but all of these various gods and artistic motifs, like every detail of it is important. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is what is the deity or the Buddha holding? What position is their, their body in? Like all of it tells you something if you know what the symbols mean. Yeah, if you can recall that visual then you can sort of trace your way back through what what lesson it's trying to teach. Yeah, uh, and and you'll see descriptions for these where they're like, all right, well, this particular uh, Buddha, Bodhisattva, or God, well, their hand is like this. That means such and such. They're holding this weapon or that, and this too is a symbol. So it all comes together. It's not just pure, um, you know, artistic uh, entertainment. So O'Huigan points out that mnemonics and memory palaces are now replaced by libraries, computers, and paper. Uh, and these function as extensions of our brains. So we don't need tools like mandalas or memory palaces anymore. And he, he goes so far to argue that this is an area where he says, quote, humanity scholars can justify their existence <laughs> by contributing something useful to the knowledge of our culture. So he has a little bit of a, <laughs> a, a lower esteem for the humanities. Uh, it, just throughout the piece in general, he's kind of dismissive of academia. That's okay. I get that sometimes too. But, uh, so anyways, he, he, he's sort of bringing these together, but at the, ultimately at the end of the day, he says, I don't think like there was some kind of like hidden connection that we haven't discovered yet where these cultures came in contact with one another and we're sharing information like this. It's just naturally how these different cultures of humanity developed. Now in the past, Mandela creation uh, has been limited by you know, human thought, but also by the limits of art and construction. So certainly we've seen some epic attempts to reflect uh, Mandela schema in architecture, but modern technology makes something even grander possible, a complete simulation of the mandala, a virtual world based on the mandala, which I think is kind of beautiful because essentially the, the memory palace take on the mandala is a simulated world, a world yeah. you simulate, simulate in your head and you make the world in your head conform uh, to the the shape in this other individual's head. And the virtual world is is the potential to do that in this this third mind, the mind of the machine. Yeah, I couldn't help but imagine that when Second Life was really at its high, there must have been somebody in there building a mandala uh, within the virtual world there that mm-hmm. somehow represented multiple things. Yeah. I, I mean, because there certainly have been, uh, s- uh, several different virtual mandala projects creating 3d simulations of these meaning laden meta symbols. Yeah. One example I've got here is from, uh, Kalmel Chen's mapping scientific frontiers, the quest for knowledge visualization. And he talks about virtual environments being created that are based on the mandala and using it as an organizing metaphor for shared cyberspace. He connects this to the idea of the memory palace. Oh, there we go. Mm-hmm. So there's another person who, who put them together and he says Cicero was the most authoritative advisor on that subject. But uh, basically, he, he says, you know, you want to begin by imagining an airy, well-lit place. Then once you get to know it, then you store and retrieve objects there. So I could see how you would both do that within your imagination and within a virtual world. One of the things that, that I'm interested in uh, as we reach the end of the discussion here is we're at a current place where we have, as we said, we've, we've, we've gotten to abandon these memory palaces for the most part. We've gotten to a point where we can abandon mandalas and other religious, uh, uh, 
paintings and, and, and meta symbols that, that give us this information. Instead, we just, we go online, right? Or we go yeah. to a book, uh, and we can find lists. We can find all the data spelled out for us. But as we get more and more into a virtual reality age, and I'm, I'm trying to, to say that not in a like mid nineties lawnmower man sense, right? But, but looking at some of the very real virtual reality applications that are going on out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, in trying to imagine a near future in which the virtual use of cyberspace is more ubiquitous, are we going to see a sort of return to some of these? Will we see, hmm. for instance, could we see spatial memory uh, employed more as an educational tool? Maybe. I think that what you might see before that is creative types maybe trying to use the medium of virtual reality or augmented reality in such a way that it's representative like a mandala is mm-hmm. uh so that like it it takes you through a virtual story and you 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 learn as you go through it hmm. and i mean we're so I'm going to South by Southwest in a couple of weeks and I was just looking at the program schedule and I can't tell you like probably like 25% of the panels there are about virtual reality oh, yeah. and augmented reality. Uh, so it is definitely something that's coming down the road. We know Facebook is heavily invested in it. Our other colleagues here at How Stuff Works have covered this. Uh, ad nauseum, but the Oculus Rift and uh, Palmer Lucky and all the work that's gone into that and Facebook buying it up and stuff. So, yeah, I think that that's going to be like a new palette uh, for people to create on. It's going to take a while, though, I think, for education to catch up to it, especially mm-hmm. when you think about it, like education hasn't really even figured out yet. Hey, maybe we should return back to this spatial learning <laughs> system that seems to work so well for our spatially uh, inclined brains. Uh, there, we have a, a friend of the show, uh, uh, goes by PK, who, uh, uh, runs King Deluxe Records out of, uh, Canada. Yeah. He's involved in a project to build a virtual space station. Oh, yeah. For like, uh, you know, for, for sort of artistic, musical purposes. And, uh, he'll occasionally see, send me some, some videos or some information on the project. And, uh, I see those and, and some of the, the really beautiful imagery that's going on there and, as much as I can tell without being like hooked into some sort of VR rig, it yeah. seems very immersive to whoever's controlling these characters. So, so th- those, those videos, when I, when I, I view them, it, it, it does make me think about, you know, how we're going to make use of, of that territory. And yeah. I feel like maybe we're going to make use of that territory in ways that we can't connect to all that much now, but we can look back to our use of purely spatial, uh, memory, uh, in the past and see, and see some sort of uh, hint of where we're going. Yeah, I think it would be nice to see a return to that. I remember when I was working uh, at the university I worked at here in town, there was maybe like a six-month window there where they were super hyped up about Second Life. Yeah. And they built an actual like version of the university in Second Life. Uh, where students, cause they thought Second Life was going to be like the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had like, you know, students could go there and like interact with FAQ forums and stuff like that. But not only that, but they had like a Greek lecture hall set up where theoretically a professor could come in there with their avatar and give a presentation to all of the Second Life avatars of students that were there. So if, you get that far and you're sort of just taking the real world analogy and applying it into the virtual world. I would imagine then when you get to the spatial reasoning 
uh, that you would say, Hey, this is uh, actually, here's a far better way for us to do this. Let's build the university as a memory palace rather than just like, you know, have your little avatar go and sit down on a fake bench or something and watch an avatar deliver a, a presentation to you. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, we only have a limited, uh, knowledge of virtual worlds out there, but I know that listeners uh, of the show, uh, have been out there exploring, uh, perhaps that you have some examples of, uh, of the, of the mandala or other constructures that have been recreated in the virtual world, maybe even in Minecraft. I didn't even think about oh, that. Oh yeah. Minecraft would be perfect for yeah. it. Yeah, you're right. Um, that's interesting. So uh, we would love to hear about any of those examples or just your general thoughts on Tibetan art, virtual reality, or the memory palace. Really, this is an episode that opens itself up to various interpretations and, and tidbits from your personal life. Yeah, you can hit us up with information about that on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram. And you can always go and visit us at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where we've got, man, everything. All of the podcasts, all the videos that we've done, blog posts galore. Uh, it is full of stuff, including links back to those social media accounts. Yeah, and I'll make sure the landing page for this episode includes links to some of the bits that we've talked about here, including Sky Burial, the previous uh, Memory Palace episode, and, uh, and, and any other little bits of related uh, information that have popped up over the years. And as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 